0: welcome to better money a show that points an x-ray at folks driving capital and driving change people working for better money i'm noelle brown and i come from the for-profit world
1: i'm jefferson smith and i come from the non-profit world And we're joined by bill burkhardt welcome thanks
0: bill burkhardt is the co-founder of the investment integration project they are a group that helps investors navigate sustainable investing his work spans across the financial services industry whether it's advisors family offices institutions asset managers and across the globe just in the last six months alone bill has been to tokyo singapore hong kong and in New York with me. Welcome, Bill.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Bill, how did you get here? What led
1: you to sustainable investment? Give us the origin story.
2: Yeah, so for me, it was a lot growing up in this kind of very uh, privileged uh, upbringing in South Florida, sunny South Florida, where I had this family that definitely was upper middle class. We kind of had access to every opportunity afforded to us and 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 in that kind of upbringing, you know, there were things like uh, public service, where my dad was the vice mayor of our town, but he was also like a real estate developer, and um, and was also sitting on a bunch of nonprofit boards. And I remember even as like a young child, kind of looking at a lot of the conversations that I would see him facilitating or decisions that he was making, and a lot of it was this, like, this mentality, of this, like, kind of white-cap developer, where you would leverage these different sectors, not necessarily for the kind of overall benefit for everybody. And even as a young kid, I remember sitting behind the da- dais at, like, the different town council meetings and, like, hearing all this and seeing these decisions getting made and kind of understanding that sometimes the citizen voice wasn't being counted and that there was a way to kind of potentially achieve longer-term shared prosperity. Um, as opposed to a lot of the stuff that I saw my dad and a lot of his colleagues doing at that time. And so it served as like, I, I see these folks who, you know, they, they draw inspiration from a lot of their family members about like how that, you know, instills something about the direction that they go. And mine was actually, it kind of, it planted a seed in it, and it kind of sent me in this direction of, I think there's a way to do this more authentically. I think there's a way to do this more collaborative in, in terms of, you know, trying to create shared prosperity. And so that ended up becoming this kind of thoroughfare throughout, like, most of my life where I was trying to figure out where I could have the most impact and where the most kind of viable, long-term, sustainable change can really be occurred. So I did some stuff in nonprofits. I worked on Capitol Hill, um, did work in kind of with various consulting practices. Um, But all of it ultimately ended up leading me back to this idea that you've got to be leveraging kind of public sector resources, private sector resources, and and civil society to create this kind of like more meaningful change. And so that ultimately kind of drift, you know, as I went from various roles um, into ultimately working out of um, an academic institution where we got a lot of funding to basically draw a circle around what was starting to happen in like 2008, when all of a sudden, post-financial crisis, or even really in the midst of it, everybody starts rethinking the role of philanthropy and injecting more of an investment mentality or more business-like practices. And so we we were essentially hired to kind of draw an analytical circle around what was happening and and try to help influence the development of the field. Um, and so that really served as my entrance point, and then kind of set me up to. Uh, become an advisor and, and a researcher in the space, um, helping to cultivate it.
0: So Bill, how's it working now?
2: So it's interesting. I mean, when when I first got into the space, it was such a kind of narrow band of players where, uh, so the world of opportunity was actually pretty small. So I think about just the world of funders, even for the work when I was operating out of Johns Hopkins, where we were a research institute trying to seek funding, and your world of funders was like Midyar, Rockefeller, and then uh, there was a few others, but it wasn't a lot of folks that were putting a lot of money into helping to build the field. Um, and a lot of the examples that we could point to of people doing interesting things or institutions that were pioneering new approaches to sustainable or impact investing, um, the evidence that, you know, who's doing what and how they're doing it and the performance they're achieving, it just was still fairly limited at that point. Um, but then as you start to kind of look across a few years and, and how my business has, uh, been shaped and reshaped and started fresh and, you know, all that, it's been amazing to see this kind of, um, this industry really start to take shape and form. And, and I always point to, um, this one, this industry group that I do a lot of work with where, um, they really represent mainstream investors, the mainstream financial services industry. And it's given me this really interesting kind of, um, way to kind of measure our progress as an industry. So when we first did something with them, this would have been back in like 20, I think it was like 2012. Um, the best that they the the best that they could justify carving out for a focus on impact or sustainable investing was to put me on their like vendor platform. So there was like me and a bunch of other firms that were kind of pitching things. And so we'd have this like little stand and I'd stand there and somebody would come up and you could basically have 20 seconds to sell them on whatever the idea or the product or whatnot. And not, I mean, I would say 98% of the people there just blatantly ignored me because they were like, what is this impact investment? Um, the next year, we actually got um, a breakout session. We got a panel, but it was like right after lunch. It was in the basement. There was a windowless room, and there weren't really a lot of people there. And then the next year, we got windows, and you know, the room filled out a little bit more. And and then the following year, you know, it just kept growing like that, and to the point that um, right around the time that Morningstar announced their big kind of sustainable investing globe ratings which really is this kind of water watershed mark of uh, I think progress and development for the field um we pulled together a webinar with John Hale who's leading that effort and a few others and um it was like the most oversubscribed webinar that this group had ever had um so it really just shows you just even in just such a small period of time that how much this field has really just grown and um and uh, just gotten more dynamic as it's gone along.
0: How have you been able to evolve your approach? You know, from from the time in which you had that windowless basement, all the way until you know a, a oversubscribed webinar. You know, is it because you there's just a, a, a now a recognition of the importance of sustainable investing? Or do you think it's also that that you've been able to speak the language of mainstream investors and help them recognize the the potential of this?
2: Yeah, so I, th- I think it's like yes and yes, right? Like, I think it's a lot of those things. Um, we, when we were, there was a lot of just concern, skepticism, um, uh, myths that we had to dispel about what we were talking about, and that it was really grounded in, authentic practice and so it, you know not just by the kind of sustainable investment advocates so trying to be able to point to investors that were starting to engage in this kind of work um, outside of foundations um, just because that that was this kind of narrow band it was the same foundations that have been doing it for years and no one was really surprised when they would start to do certain things so being able to kind of demonstrate that more investors were starting to demand these kinds of strategies, um, and and that even though the foundations and the more traditional um, investors in the space, uh, that they were wanting to go deeper and and really cover their entire portfolio. Um, But as we started to broaden to include more uh, different types of investors, they were starting to experiment not just in Kind of private market transactions, but they're starting to apply this lens to all sorts of public equities, fixed income securities across the whole portfolio. Um, and and I think it it started to I think two things happened. I think one people started to get that wow there are a lot more investors seem to be asking for this and the number of them that are asking for this is accelerating pretty quickly. Um, but there was also just this acknowledgement that it's good even beyond this group that they weren't doing it because of of values play, they were doing it because they really started to see that these issues had a kind of material impact on the long-term performance of their investments. So if you have the the biggest pension fund in the world, GPIF in Japan, basically coming out there and saying, we have a 75 to 100-year time horizon, and we fundamentally believe that something like climate change or income inequality threatens the long-term stability of our investments that's huge. It sends these shockwaves through the entire financial services community. And mm-hmm. so so I think the more that we can see those examples and those examples have been uh, highlighted and dramatized, um, mm-hmm. I think that it's been, you see it more and more trickling down even to uh, financial advisor level.
1: How do you measure success? And if some of that is by using the Morningstar sustainability ratings, explain that a little bit.
2: So uh, measuring success comes in a lot of different shapes, and it, and it ranges across, like in terms of uh, impact progress, assuming. Um, and in that case, it, it comes in different shapes. Um, and it is different if you are thinking about a strategy focused on avoiding bad actors or bad industries, or if you are trying to proactively emphasize particular industries, particular themes, um, kind of taking more of like an intentional positive orientation, um, all of which is different from if you have an engagement strategy where you are attempting to work directly um, with companies to influence change and or operating through kind of broader shareholder advocacy groups to affect change. And so each of these things ends up having different ways um, to start to measure progress. And some of those things are qualitative, some of them are quantitative, um, and they range. And And I think part of the dilemma for a lot of folks that are looking at this industry and they're trying to make sense of it is that they don't necessarily know how to make sense when the globe rating from Morningstar, say there's five globes, how that contrasts with like a number rating from another, like Bloomberg or Thomson Reuters. Um, and, and/ or how those things might differ from like a letter score that they might get from another rating or ranker. So so I think that it's the range of ways um, that people can measure progress is is varied. Um, but I think that the important things that folks need to I think increasingly start to understand is kind of what those those core features are that these things are ranging along. So, The scores that they get are based on different kinds of indicators. So whereas Bloomberg Terminal might use, say, 120 indicators to come up with its score, um, a thing like impact-based Base is looking at private equity funds is looking at, say, 34 indicators. Um, And then you kind of have to look at the data that's going into it. Is this self-reported data? Is it from government surveys? Um, Is it collected from some objective third party? And then thinking through what is the kind of unit of analysis? Are you looking at the underlying companies? Are you looking at the funds? Are you looking at the firms? Because each of these things, depending on the answer to them, is gonna fundamentally change what you're what you're learning about the company or the manager um, or the firm. And, and that's really important, I think, in terms of being able to really determine progress. Um, and so that's a lot of what people are grappling with. But I guess the short answer is to say there's a range of ways to do it really just depends kind of what kind of strategy you're looking at and um, and what you're hoping to learn.
1: How do we, So it, let me – do you mind if we drill into this one just a little bit? Sure. Go for it. The, uh, so what are your favorite tools? What are the favorite services you use? And for people who are new to it, explain what those are. And for people who aren't new to it, explain why you like one a little bit more than the other or why you like the set you're going to mention over some others.
2: Sure. Yeah. So, so I would say, depending on the, uh, like, what segment of the financial services industry you represent, um, you're going to use these things for different purposes. Nothing is. I, I guess the the short answer is nothing is perfect. But we can't let uh, perfection stand in the way of progress. So, um, I think if you are looking at publicly listed companies and you want kind of a broad universe of data and you want a broad universe of companies to compare and contrast and you have access to the Bloomberg Terminal, you can use Bloomberg Terminal to look at the ESG data and characteristics of these publicly listed companies across 83 different countries. Um, so that's a that's a hugely helpful tool. It doesn't necessarily get you to things like outcomes um, and more kind of long-term change, uh, next-level insights into impact, but it does give you a sense of carbon emissions, uh, pollution, waste disposal, political contributions, things like that, that do matter, particularly if you are trying to integrate uh, environmental, societal, and governance characteristics. Um, right now, the I had mentioned impact base uh, for private equity funds. The world of opportunity there is pretty limited. You've got about a 425 profiles of funds in it. Um, these are self-reported uh, data and It's not that they rate or score these products, but um, they do give some kind of overview, a sense of financial and impact-related information. Um, There's not a lot of alternatives to it at the moment, um, particularly for PE. So so it's kind of like you're almost like stuck with it until we can find some better solutions. And I think a number of folks are thinking about it, considering it, um, but the verdict is still out. the Morningstar Sustainable Globe ratings are interesting um, just because their coverage is uh, meant to cover over 20,000 mutual funds and ETFs. Um, they are, I, th- I think the thing that I've I've liked about what Morningstar's done, So, at first they got a lot of criticism when they came out because they didn't quite capture intentionality. So a lot of the funds that ended up rating really highly, it was almost like, Uh, they didn't have to actually have anything to do with ESG considerations or sustainable investing. They just happened to rate highly because of some of the things that they were being assessed along. They have slowly but surely tried to refine their methodology. They're constantly trying to figure out ways to improve it, to add intentionality considerations into it. So I think that if you look at one that is constantly in a state of evolution of learning and trying to get better, I think Morningstar is, is doing some interesting work. And then finally, if you're looking at, engagement strategies so if you think about the segmentation of avoidance strategies and emphasis and engagement um, institutional shareholder services ISS ISS still is kind of like one of the major ones they have data on like 4700 public and traded companies um, they measure the quality of governance uh, it, they do a lot of things that um, give you an interesting Profile of a, of a company from board structure to compensation, shareholder rights, audit practices, and they try to weight and reweight these things to give you a really accurate sense of, of the quality of the company. So, those are just some of the ones that, you know, for us that we tend to look at, that um, we see a lot of our clients using. Um, yet again, can't let perf- perfection stand in the way of progress. And so they're all kind of works in progress, um, But but we can point to them as being uh, fairly credible.
0: I'm going to ask the same question, but in a different kind of frame. Um, how do you define success for yourself in this project?
2: So, yeah, so I think we've always thought about when we, so when we launched TIIP, um, we really wanted to try to push the sustainable investing industry in particular, but really finance in general, to try to understand the systemic Uh, risks and opportunities that relate to their investments. So really trying to take that lens away from just this portfolio level focus on the number and types of investments they're making and the kind of how that performs relative to a benchmark and kind of a lot of the traditional kind of metrics that we use when we talk about measuring progress that tend to be outputs focused. They don't really give you a sense of the complexity of the investments that you're making. So time and place and Other kinds of contexts that are going to help determine whether or not that this is going to be a type of impact investment that's actually going to address fundamental change, um, whether in a local system or a more macro global system. We're seeing this kind of embrace of a systemic focus in particularly in industry groups like the Principles for Responsible Investment. It's a U.N.-backed initiative to kind of identify core characteristics of good, uh, sustainable investment. Um, And it's something that they actually, they have six principles. They, at one point, were considering adding a seventh principle focused on systemic risk. Um, They now have a sustainable financial system program in operation. You have other industry groups that either focus on environmental or societal or governance factors, or that kind of look at the industry more broadly and speak to a specific segment of the investor community, are also embracing this kind of more system-level focus. Um, And then we're seeing more of that kind of uh, frame and focus happening within specific investments. So when we started out, we could um, point to about 50 asset owners and asset managers that were starting to go beyond a kind of portfolio focus on sustainable investment or impact investment to now um, to get to that next level where they were really starting to think beyond just their portfolio to the to the broader influence on these systems. And the more, and we've seen more and more evidence of investors, particularly because of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the kind of uh, global blueprint for poverty alleviation. It's the closest thing we have to a blueprint. Um, that people are really embracing um, and all sorts of other, these like broader issues like climate change that are just forcing this kind of larger consideration of how these systems affect long-term performance. Um, So, yeah, so, so we see basically it it really boils down to, are the industry groups really starting to embrace this? Um, Are specific investors starting to implement it? Um, And then how is generally thought and vernacular changing as a result of, People starting to develop a, a, a greater, more sophisticated orientation towards impact. So that's essentially how we measure our progress.
0: Awesome. Well, okay. So we're gonna we're gonna kind of change gears here um, and talk a little bit more about you, Bill. Um, so, question for you: We all screw up. What's an epic fail moment for you?
2: <laughs> so. I, the biggest epic fail moment I guess I've had so far is, um, so I'm a serial entrepreneur and my first startup, we <laughs> we went from this like, we were industry darlings, we were advising the G8, we were, you know, getting flown all around the world and doing all these wonderful things. And then we just could not get a coherent business model in place. Mind you, this is exactly at the time when impact investment as a term, as an industry was really starting to take shape. So it it was our own fault. We just couldn't get out of our own way. And so, you know, you go through this period of time where you, you know, you believe in this thing, you build this thing up, it starts to seemingly uh, get momentum. Um, And then it just, you know, it it comes crashing down. I mean, in the calendar year of 2014, you know, as an entrepreneur, you do all of those things that um, they that any financial advisor would tell you not to do. Um, so you're ripping through credit, you're ripping through savings, you're doing all those things. And, and I remember the year of 2014 was like the real low point where the acknowledgement that we had run out of runway, it, it wasn't going to take off. Um, I don't care if we were, you know, advising the Clinton Global Initiative or we were doing some other fancy thing at Davos, like it wasn't going to happen. And, and, but you still kind of believe in it to the point that you're like willing to kind of live out of your car kind of thing. And, and that, that was just this really interesting thing. And it, and it taught me these like really interesting, like, you know, that was the prime example where we had you know, the Swiss billionaire benefactor, we had all of this opportunity and it didn't work out. My second company was the classic, like I got my launch capital from a loan from my sister a close friend of mine who's a lawyer, helped me register the LLC. another friend built my website, like all that kind of stuff, real you know rubber bands and paper clips. And it ended up being more successful within six months than the other you know more well-known brand ever was. And so it, it's just an interesting thing, like failure and success and all that, but but I would definitely have to say um, being an entrepreneur and that that first startup failing was was probably the biggest one so far.
1: If someone were going to call bull on you or your current line of business, what would they say? And or what do you have to do to make sure that it isn't bull?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So, it's funny. Um, actually, uh, one of my closest friends, uh, she builds multimillion-dollar houses for a living, and so it's 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 concrete. It's you can see it, you can touch it, you can, you know, look around it. Um, impact investment is a little bit different, and it's not it's not it's not necessarily a product. Um, it's a way of thinking, it's a strategy, it's a set of considerations. And so I think well, you know there's that criticism of like well, it's, it's you're talking about magic or witchcraft. like it, it's, it, there's this like absurd quality to it for a lot of investors. Um, and, and what we're able to do now to challenge those kind of myths and misperceptions is we can point to why, you know, it's good for business and and why more and more of the financial uh, services industry is embracing it. We can point to financial performance that is meeting uh, established benchmarks and in some cases even exceeding them. And we can point to how the consideration of these um, factors in investment are actually influencing environmental and societal um, outcomes. And whether it was, you know, in the 80s with the anti-apartheid anti-apar- movement in South Africa, or even earlier with Vietnam pro- protests and civil civic engagement or um, environmental activism. All of these things, like as they've migrated, we can point to the kind of how greater sophistication, um, longer-term results, uh, more opportunities across asset classes. So, so I would say that a lot of the the bull that we for sure got even just 10 years ago around impact investment is definitely giving way to uh, a different reality that we can very much make the case that this is a real thing and that it's not, you know, it's not make-believe. It's not witchcraft.
0: Wonderful. We're going to go ahead and go into the rapid round. So we're going to ask you a series of questions that we ask all of our guests and you get to respond as quickly as possible. So I'm going to go ahead and start out. Um, what is a piece of advice you got that still inspires you?
2: Yeah, I remember this. Um, it was actually right before I got in this industry. Uh, do the thing that everyone is either too lazy or finds too challenging to do something about. And if you do that, you'll make a name for yourself. You'll make space for yourself in whatever industry you're trying to kind of navigate. A book that needs to
1: be on our bookshelves.
2: Thinking and Systems by Danella Meadows.
1: What's a quote you try to live by?
2: This was a Warren Buffett quote from a few years ago, but uh, predicting rain doesn't count; building arcs does.
1: Something you recently learned that surprised you?
2: Oh, that so. Through the research work that we just did um, with financial advisors, we had started out with this like really intense interview guide, and we're asking all these questions. In about ten interviews, in we realized we weren't kind of getting what we really needed. People were either kind of didn't really understand how to integrate sustainable investing into their advisory practices, or they were intentionally being vague with us, um, not wanting to give away their secret sauce. And we had went to one of our key advisors with it, and we said, we don't know what to do about it. We're not getting to the real practical nitty-gritty that we want. And we said, we think it's one of these two reasons. And he said, well, I actually think there's a third one. And we were like, what's that? And he goes, a lot of financial advisors don't even know what their advisory process is. (laughs) And it it was this interesting moment for us where we had to kind of step back and say, wow, this is like, there's more that we have to actually address here and we have to do it subtly Um, and in some ways maybe more explicitly. But you can't always just like assume like your starting point is necessarily the right starting point. And that, that, that was a clear reminder for us about that.
0: Last one. What's something about you that few people know?
2: What's something about. So I present as a very fit person, but I would literally eat fried chicken at every meal, with, like <laughs> a side of donuts um, and like a good bourbon old fashioned. Like that would be like I would literally eat that every day.
1: Bill, thank you for spending time on Better Money.
2: Thanks so much.